Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this week, we have a pretty special episode. We are joined by two incredibly talented individuals who have come together to co-direct an exciting new documentary called The Four. Now, this project is amazing. I'm very much looking forward to talking about it. Jessamine Irwin, Daniel Quintanilla, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Now, Jessamine, let's start with you. I'd like to get your story before we get too far into this film, which, I mean, I've seen the trailer for, I've read some write-ups talking about it, and it sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, so let's just get your story real quick. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in Bangor, Maine. Yeah. And now, did you have any kind of Franco-American background? Where did the interest in any of this come from at all? So, I, you know, in my family, we aren't in any way of Franco-American heritage. But when my mom was a kid, she started school in Madawaska. Oh, and I know that's very Acadian French heavy. And so she would always tell me about, you know, hearing French on the playground at school and just became a lifelong uh, Francophile, Francophile. Nice. And so, yeah, really my French started with my mom and then I went on to study it. And it's just something that I have always loved. Okay, yeah, and so what made you decide, you know what, this is kind of cool, the stories that I'm hearing from mom, this might be something I'm interested in, you know, you know, searching for as far as on the academic side. Before leaving Maine, I don't think I ever realized how unique the French was that that, that is still in the state. Sure. Um, and once I left, you know, I started, um, I lived in France and traveled abroad and everything, and, and nobody knew about it. So when I started at NYU, I thought, well, I want to help people learn more about the French from where I come from before it disappears. And I started teaching this class called Living in French in North America. And that's how it all began. All right, cool. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the class because that sounds amazing. But uh, did you go up around? I mean, did you have friends who kind of grew up in the traditions? Did you eat a lot of pork pie over at Buddy's house or have some gâteau sandwiches or anything like that growing up? Uh, no, you know, all <laughs> of that I learned. Well, the thing is, in hindsight, a lot more makes sense. Like when I think back to like my high school French classes and kids in the class talking about their meme and pepe and everything. I remember that very clearly, sure. but I, you know, I can't say that I experienced the culture because I really didn't until, you know, getting into this world as an academic, you know? Very cool. Now, all right. So living in French in North America sounds like an absolutely amazing class. First of all, what is the class about and what made you decide, you know what, this is something I absolutely have to create right now. I mean, I've always been really attached to um, storytelling and I, I honestly, it sounds funny, but I'm also really attached to older folks. I love, you know, getting that exchange because it's, sure. it's like a, a living history book that you can talk to and get a look into the past. And so a Quebecois colleague named uh, Jonathan Caillet and essentially it's an alternative spring break course. And so with alternative spring break, you know, your course has a mission and our mission was to document oral history in Maine. So we 
you know, spend the first half, first half of the semester learning about the history of French in North America in general. And during spring break, we take an eight day road trip and, you know, hit all the hot spots. We go to Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, we go to Lewiston, which is where our documentary currently takes place. Um, sure. We go up to Orno as well. And we just interview and talk and, you know, students get to see an example of French, the living language of French in Maine. Sure. No, that's all. I mean, you, you say you stop on Lowell on the way up, which I think oh, is yeah. very, very, very Yeah, cool. the home of Jack Kerouac. Yeah, of course. That is one of the stops on our Franco roots. Yeah. And this, and this t still exists, this class? You still offer this class? Yes, every spring. All right. So I'm looking forward to the next spring then when you stop in Manchester. We'll give you a little tour. We'll add it to the list. Absolutely show you around. All right, that's very, very, very awesome. All right, so you talk about these kind of these oral histories that you've been documenting. Um, who do you interview? How do you find the people to interview? First of all, how do you convince them to talk to you? Is that even difficult? Because I've kind of had mixed bags oh. sometimes. With that. In my experience, and I think maybe I've just been very fortunate, everyone has said yes. They've Everyone that I've, um, especially in Maine, and I don't know if it's, Obviously, I'm not a member of the Franco-American community as, as it like being a part of like my heritage. But, sure. um, you know, speaking French is a huge part of the Franco-American heritage. And I think that, you know, recognizing that as valuable means a lot to people. So I, I just I remember, you know, like the first trip we made up to Lewiston and I coordinated with Jacinthe, who used to work at the Gendron Franco Center. And when we came up with my students for that first trip, I just remember the interactions between the Franco-Americans that were present. And what's interesting is that it wasn't just Franco-Americans, it was also Franco-Africans that had oh, come sure. to Lewiston more recently. So my students come and introduce themselves. And I just remember feeling really moved by the Franco-Americans that were complimenting my students, telling them how perfect their French was and how beautiful their French was. And my students were stunned because they were like, well, you guys grew up speaking, commenting us, like we're just students. And that says a lot, you know, that really speaks to the, I mean, the past learned shame of, you know, Maine French. Um, a lot of people grew up, grew up believing that their home language was just slang and it wasn't something you could actually use. You know, it had no public function, which is false. Um, but it's kind of ingrained, you know, in, in a lot of people. So, so yeah, but all that to say the Franco-Americans of Lewiston and of Orno and all the Franco-Americans I've interacted with in Maine have been super welcoming the Franco-African community as well. And yeah, I feel really fortunate to be part of that today. That is very <laughs> awesome. I'm sure they're excited to see students reaching out to them in French, especially. I'm sure that makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, I know so for me, um, it wasn't so much that people um, were not interested. They're more, when I've asked them, they're almost surprised, like, why, why me? Why this story? Like, they, they it's, it's like, um, it comes as news to them that they might have a story that's worth telling, that they, they almost don't understand that that's the case, which could be difficult. But the fact that you can do it in French, I'm sure is super helpful. Daniel, I'd like to get your story down. Where are you from then? You don't exactly have a French last name. I don't, no. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a difficult last name to say, but I found that many uh, last names in French for people here in Maine who are not from that 
background have a hard time saying those <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, for example, our main character in the film, Desjardins, people can't say that, so they'll say Desjardins. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I find that both comical, but an insight into something that, that happened in the past, and that's part of kind of what we're trying to do in the film is kind of unpack a lot of this, of, of why we're where we're where we're at right now, why people feel shame, why people feel like disconnected in some ways from their past. And many people are searching for that connection. So uh, a little bit about just my background. Uh, I, I was born in Mexico. Um, I come from a multicultural home, uh, one parent from the US, one parent from Mexico. What spoke to me about this story, and I guess it's a theme across a lot of the, the films that I've been able to work on and, and partake in, is that there's this sort of thread that connects a lot of these immigration stories. I, I see a, a sort of universal story in this, and that's honestly one of the things that attracted me to this, is that we explore this in the film, but it's sort of like history repeats itself. And it's like the next new immigrant group that comes that sort of faces a lot of the same things that these older immigrant groups faced. And really not a lot of people know what, you know, French young, you know, French Canadian kids experienced in school and all that. And it may in a certain way be what a lot of young kids like Congolese, you know, uh, Burundian kids have to face in slightly different ways, but it, it's similar. So I, our hope is that this film kind of creates a conversation that can sort of engage everybody in, 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 a, in this larger immigration story in which they can see their, their own story in there and create these bridges that often are hard to create so that an old immigrant group understands and can connect with a, a new immigrant group. Um, so that's what attracted me. And I think that's sort of my connection to the film and to the film subject. No, that's awesome. And I thought, I actually think what you said about the whole your last name thing was pretty fascinating just being I'm up here in Quebec City right now and I can tell you that it's a whole lot easier telling people what my last name is here than it is even back home in New Hampshire and certainly is much easier than when I was living in Philadelphia or DC so now that's super interesting but yes we need to talk about this film so maybe we can start this way who is Cecile what's her story how'd you guys find it uh, well, so Cecile is a Franco-American retiree in her 60s, and I first met Cecile visiting the Franco Center with my students, and she was just incredibly helpful, very motivated to share her knowledge and, and love of the French language, but also, you know, share her contacts within the Franco-African community of Lewiston. She was really you know, with with my knowledge of who is working to keep French alive in in Lewiston, I mean, I don't think that was actually her her intentional goal, but she happened to fall into that and happened to be, um, yeah, at the forefront of that connection between, as Daniel was saying, past and present uh, immigrant communities. So anyway, back to Cecile, uh, Franco American retiree. Um, what can we tell you about Cecile? She's she's fun. She's got amazing French. She knows a heck of a lot about Lewiston. She grew up in Lewiston. Both of her parents spoke French and she went to parochial schools like many Lewiston Franco-Americans. Um, 
up until high school. And, you know, that's a story we hear a lot. Um, sure. But in high school, she, she sort of made a decision to lose her French accent in English um, and really began to actively reject that Franco identity that she had. Obviously, societal pressures played a huge role in that, and it's something we explore in the film as well. Why did that happen, and why did it happen to so many people? Um, why do people walk around with this shame about their identity, you know, like as if, yeah, their way of life was un-American or not good enough or less good? Cecile is unique in that she went through that shame, and coming back to Louis through her French roots, thanks to this new wave of immigration, it really helped her heal and, and get through that, that past shame. Um, so yeah, I just think she's a great example of, of you know, I don't know, of, of how powerful it can be to, to finally have pride in, um, in your identity and, and your heritage. So yeah, that's Cecile. I don't know if I left anything out. Danny, feel free to complete that because sometimes I forget things. You know, it's it's somebody in, in their 60s who's who has had these life experiences and is able to kind of realize what was lost in their life due to this sort of purposeful but sometimes unconscious rejection of everything they sort of stood for or who what community they belong to, to the point, and she'll tell you this story where she was the one actively mocking the French, the French accent, the French identity. She and her friends would go to, we have this great story she tells about going to the twin games, uh, a hockey team, and they would hold these signs that would basically say, you know, with a sort of written in like how a French, uh, somebody with a French accent would say, let's go twins. And, and they would do it just in front of the cameras that were broadcasting the game. And she didn't even like hockey. So, that, that's sort of where it can go. And she's comfortable now in her 60s opening up and talking about where, where she's been and, and how her stories really come around. And, and the big surprising part of that is how she got her French back. It wasn't through her Lewis and friends because very few were publicly speaking French. Um, she found it through these French groups that were mostly Congolese people uh, who were using the French language as um, something to sort of overcome the language barriers that a lot of asylees and refugees face. And it was through those encounters where she was able to find community. She was able to sort of find uh, a, a reason, a raison d'être, a reason to be. And they got as much from her as she got from them, which is one of the the, the beautiful things of, of this story that it, it was a give and take and and it was all sort of thank you to this thing they shared which was the French language. Mm -hmm. No that's awesome I mean what you described is I mean it's a theme that we've heard quite a bit on this podcast it's almost like a the idea of, of a journey like a cultural identity being not being a stagnant thing that it is a, a continual journey that a lot of people find themselves on. I know I can relate to that myself, certainly. And it sounds like a lot of the themes that you were talking about um, in Cecile's life are things that are going to be very familiar with people, two people, excuse me, that listen to this podcast. And that's absolutely, absolutely very, very awesome. And now we've alluded to it a couple of different times, talking about the Sileys or um, refugees uh, from the Congo. Now, can you maybe just tell the story for those who might not know 
how did this population end up of all places, Lewiston, Maine? Kind of what does that world look like now? Well, I just want to make a comment to you really quickly about what you sure. just said. You know, we do hope that people listening to this or that watch the film, we hope that they will identify with this, you know, in some way. Like as Daniel mentioned earlier, it is in many ways a universal story. You know, a lot of this is going to be very specific to Franco-Americans, but and to Franco-Africans, of course, but um, you know, in the in the big picture, it's it's an immigration story. It's about yeah. displacement, and there are many reasons for that. So coming back to um, the Congolese, the Rwandans. I mean, I've said Franco-Africans many times, and I don't mean to be um, you know imprecise or unprecise. I don't remember the word in English now. Imprecise. <laughs> <laughs> but. It's just we have people coming into the state and that are new mayors that are coming from primarily the Congo, um, Angola, which, of course, in Angola, they speak Portuguese, but along the border, many people speak French as well. And those are the two biggest groups that have come recently. But before then, there were um, Tibutians, Rwandans, um, Burundians. And so why are people leaving those countries in Africa? A lot of it, especially for our, you know, Congolese friends that we've made in Lewiston, they've shared that it has to do with um, basically the, the effects of genocide and war and corruption. And so genocide stemming from Rwanda initially in the 90s, um, you know, the, the war has been going on for a long time now in the borders of, you know, around Angola and the Congo and in Rwanda, of course, you know, genocide has ended. But the point is that the effects of that have, they aren't over. I mean, people that committed genocide in Rwanda oftentimes escaped into the Congo. And, you know, when we talk to, for example, um, Julie, one of our uh, characters in the film, she expresses that one of the major problems in the Congo is that the government doesn't, uh, the people, in that there's no, um, there's no healthcare system in place. Like the education is is limited. You know, access to education is is limited, and so you end up with a population that they don't have a lot of choices. There's not a lot of options, and and so yeah, I, I think it all really comes down to um, corruption and oppression, and and it makes it impossible to live your life the way that you want to, and that's the reason people are are leaving. You know. Um, and, and to be quite frank, you know, many people left because their lives were threatened um, by the government. That's why people are leaving. Why are they coming to Maine? The number one answer I've heard to that question is because they knew someone else that told them Maine was a really nice place and that they were welcoming to newcomers. And that's, awesome. that's all I know. Because um, it, it is sort of unexpected. I mean, why? Well, first of all, the whole linguistic coincidence of French, you know, this overlap between the two communities, um, the newcomers and, the, you know, the past history of French in Maine, which many people don't even know about. Um, sure. That's really unique. But but yeah, why Maine? It's it's far away. It's cold here. It's it's not an easy place to live. Um, but yeah, that's that's the answer I've received is they know someone that said it was nice. And one of the things that you, you understand, if you understand their story as to how they got to Maine, same thing as a few people came up, but it was affordable housing and, and sort of safe living spaces for them. And I, um, one of the largest groups currently there is Somalis, uh, uh, yeah, Somali, uh, Somali Bantu, uh, different groups. 
and and the Franco sort of African group is sort of came after them and found some of the same appeal of being in a small second largest city in in Maine, but it's still a small city compared <laughs> yeah. to every other city. I think. In the <laughs> and one of our main characters, Trésor is his name, Treasure, as he would translate it. Um, is an artist. He has studied the arts since he was young. He, Brazil, studied arts there, experienced, in his own words, a lot of racism that, that exists uh, uh, towards people, you know, like him. And he came to join his sister, this sort of story that we're talking about, which is joining a family member or somebody who came before you, join his sister. And so he's now in this place that he describes as a very cold place. It's both a physically cold, but I think it's also like a different kind of cold, which sure. is culture is very different and people live further apart from each other. You need a vehicle, you need things to build community, especially during a pandemic. Um, so he's the, the second kind of big character for us. And, and one of the things he said as to why he left Congo was as an artist who speaks up against sort of this political corruption against the government, those people are targeted. They actually are. And so he doesn't go it too much into it, but he describes as one of the reasons why he's seeking asylum in Lewiston, in Maine. Um, and that's how he kind of arrived there. Yeah, I mean, I think the story is pretty fascinating. I mean, Manchester, my hometown is a, uh, at least was uh, a refugee placement city as well. Um, and I think mainly because we had a bunch of old mill housing that so was considered super affordable. But like oh, wow. you point, but like as you pointed out, it has led to once the community starts, more start moving in, it becomes a very much more interesting, much more fascinating story, I find, um, which is very cool. But anyway, so you mentioned Trezor, and you know, kind of he's the major character. Now, how does he meet Cecile? How's that relationship develop? Well, through the Franco Center, they met through um, an event called La Rencontre, which initially started as a gathering targeted towards Franco-Americans who wanted to refine their French and practice their French again. But well before Trésor was ever in Lewiston, Franco-Africans started coming to the event as well. It's funny because I think back to the initial meetings that like we've heard about, like the initial overlap between the um, French-speaking African community and the Franco-Americans. And Cecile, who moved back to Lewiston to, and decided to refine her French and went to this event at the Franco Center, she was kind of disappointed because so many of the Franco-Americans there, they would start out in French and then they'd go back to English. She ended up meeting French-speaking Africans there who would stay in French. And then she started going to their conversation groups instead. That's awesome. That's very <laughs> um, awesome. Which really drastically improved her French. But the first connection between Trésor and Cécile took place at the Franco Center as well. Um, Trésor came in and uh, I know in the first interactions, um, Cécile has mentioned that, you know, she learned that he was an actor and he had come in because he was really interested in the performing arts and wanting to participate in that in Lewiston. And, you know, the Franco Center, of course, um, does a lot of that. So that's that's how they first met. And how did you go from having this amazing story to deciding, you know what, we got to make this into a documentary? The conception of this, I mean, 
it, it really does stem from that class. And I don't want to attribute all of it to that because the project has developed so much, um, especially since, you know, teaming up with Daniel. Um, so yeah, I started documenting oral history in Maine with my students. And then I got the idea to make a documentary. And I started a parallel project called Living in French. And I worked really hard on it, but you know, um, I'm a French teacher and I have very little experience in filmmaking. And so I sought advice from um, someone named Julia Schultz, who, sure. of course, you know, Julia Schultz, of course. Yeah. Uh, and her partner, Ben Levine, who in the past made um, a film called Waking Up French or Réveil. And they um, looked over my footage and they were like, you know what? Why don't you work with this really great filmmaker we know named Daniel Quintanilla? And that was just in December. So oh, wow. you know, I have been working on the project, but it's kind of like, it did feel like I was hitting a little bit of a wall. Um, and it's, it's nice to be working with someone who is an expert in, in what he does. And I get to be an expert in what I get and it works out really well. So at least so far, no, <laughs> from, from where I'm sitting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Big fans of Ben Levine here. He's, we've been on the podcast before that for I mean, this is 20 years ago, but that film was a game changer when that came out, the Reveille Waking Up French. Yeah, and, and we hope to kind of, you know, mirror that in a in some small way. Like we really love that they did screenings and then really engaged the community through their discussions following that. And we fully intend to do the same thing. So, yeah. And now, do you plan? To, is it going to be available in French to be shown up here? Oh yeah, I'm yes. <laughs> the, I mean, the a lot of the film it is in French. Um, but we'll certainly put French subtitles on the English portions or the Lingala portions or, yeah. Very cool. Now, yeah, the, the, I would say that maybe, what, 60 or 70% of the film is in French and the, the rest is in English and like Jesse mentioned, a little bit in uh, Congolese language, Lingala. That's terrific. Now, now, Daniel, you've worked with Ben before, is that correct? I have, yeah, in different capacities. Uh, both he, uh, Ben and Julia have been involved in language documentation and reacquisition in communities here in Maine, but also all over the world. You know, the communities in here in Maine, I, I don't know what it's like in New Hampshire, but if you're a filmmaker, you almost know every other filmmaker. And when this opportunity awesome. for this film grant came up through SIF, I had like five people email me. <laughs> you need to apply for this, uh, which was the Main Film Heritage Grant. I think that's what it's called, Main Film Heritage Grant. Main Heritage Film Grant. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that's a, it was heavily focused on French because it was uh, sponsored, this grant by Devis Saint-Mont, the French language broadcaster, uh, who's partially funding our film. So in conversation, meeting Jesse in conversation, we basically started assessing through Jesse's network of people that she'd interviewed or and talked to, whom, where might there be a good story here that touches both on the new immigrants and this older immigrants. And Cecile, she'd been, her name was out in public. I mean, she'd been interviewed by Radio Canada and NPR and, you know, main public. 
all these things. So I, I actually had been aware of her, but it was such a small community that, you know, surely right after that, we were able to meet Dresor and talk to a bunch of other people. And I think immediately we saw that there was a connection here in which we could use Cecile's story as a back, the backbone of a story in which we show how somebody from a young age makes a decision to not be Franco-American, to not have that identity. And in her 60s comes back to it, to, to reconnecting with that, thanks to Franco-Africans like Trezor. That was just like a, a, a beautiful little like log line of a film that you could just see there. And it, it was just sort of how do we actually make that happen during a pandemic when people are vaccinated. So we had to wait till people got vaccinated and, and, and really kind of put a lot of effort into making those connections happen. Yeah, and it seems from what I've seen so far that Chizur almost kind of had a reaction when he started learning a little bit about what the French experience had been, you know, a number of years ago, 50, 60, 70 years ago in Maine, because we've talked about in this program quite a bit that Franco's did not always have the easiest of life, the, the best uh, <laughs> welcome ever when they arrived in Maine. So it is it was kind of interesting to get kind of his view, considering the amazing life experience he's had, kind of his view on all that. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like every time we do an interview or have a conversation with Trésor, he brings this perspective to the table that, you know, I hadn't even realized before either, even though I've been talking to Franco-Americans all this time. And yeah, I found it really helpful just being able to work with him and, and gain more perspective about how he sees Maine as, you know, someone coming here, you know, from a very different background. Um, and he draws these parallels and um, from, you know, experiences that, you know, things that happen to Franco-Americans and then, you know, what's happening today. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really great. He's, he's a thinker and a performer. He does it all. And I feel like we've definitely learned a lot from him. Now, I'd like to quickly just touch on, I guess it doesn't have to be quickly, but I'd like to touch on the, the title of the film, The Carrefour, which you correctly. You would think after a bunch of months in Quebec City, I could be better at it than I am. But um, what is what does the title mean and why why was it chosen? It really just comes from the, the story that we're telling, which is sort of like Lewiston, if you've ever seen Lewiston and seen a mill town, you see these canals that basically intersect with each other and you see the river and how the city is laid and a lot of it has been laid for a purpose, which is for the industry that is powering and who's powering that industry, you know, in many cases was the Franco-Americans or French Canadians that arrived. So we, we sort of took the, the, the physicality of that and, and looked at the intersection of these two communities that shared the French language. And it naturally seemed like it applied, like it made sense, like by reading that title, it would have a resonance to the story we were telling. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, I, I remember thinking back to like when we were really fine tuning the story and we'd ask the question, like, what is this about? And in essence, it's the intersection of two immigrant communities, past and present who are brought together by what they share, which is French. I mean, they share more than that. You know, there's so many differences, but they, they do share more than, than just the language in essence. But yeah, we just kept finding that 
that title was, you know, well suited to the story. But then, like Daniel said, like developing the idea from there, like just the way Lewiston was built. I mean, it, yeah, it just works in all ways. <laughs> this has been fun. So big picture. And we, we started getting this film out. People start seeing this film. What is the goal? What is the goal for the film? What do you want people ultimately to take after they've seen this film? We mentioned this before, but the goal of this film is to zoom in on this experience in Lewiston, Maine, give voice to these communities and share a story that is very particular to Lewiston, but a story that is, you know, a lot of people are going to be able to identify with. We touch on so many themes in the film as well. Uh, I think it really goes back to what Daniel said earlier, actually, just creating a conversation around this, you know, immigration, um, identity, multilinguistic identity, you know, we want to let French speakers and immigrants and, you know, anyone that struggles with identity know that they're valuable, um, that we see them, we hear them, like, it, yeah, just sending that positive message. I, I think it's, from my perspective, uh, I was aware slightly of the French presence in Maine, but I think that we're filling a gap with this story in the sense that there's many people who don't have any idea of this. There's this, there's this prejudice that exists because I've heard it. Anytime I say I'm going to Lewiston, there's people who will be like, why go to Lewiston? It's got a negativity attached to it. And I think some of that is carried from what Franco-Americans experienced and now, in many ways, it's carried by Somalis who live there and new immigrants, French-speaking African immigrants. So from my purpose, it's a story that has sort of been told like Reve in some way, but this is a different angle. And it's a hopeful angle as to the possibility of connection between these various groups. So I feel like it's, it's, it's a, a story that needs to be told. I mean, that phrase is overused, but I think it does because I would have benefited from watching a story like that. My appreciation for the history of Maine, my kind of appreciation for the people who now call Maine home. And really it's not just Maine, it's New England. Um, I, I see that I would have benefited from that. And so I'm, that's my goal. It's like, all right, get, let's get this story out. Let's do it in a way that is engages audiences in the storytelling that engages sort of people by the history of the clan in Maine. They didn't know about all these cross burnings all over the state. Uh, they didn't know about, you know, the language laws that were, that were sort of being implemented statewide to dissuade people from speaking French in public schools. That stuff is not widely known. If you read the books, you'll learn it, but many people don't know it. So I see it as an opportunity to, to really bring forward and sort of open that, that dusty chest that you know, has all this stuff. And when you show this film, it releases energy and people are there, they see other people they know who sort of speak like them, who have similar stories to them. They're gonna open up and be able to talk about it because they see others do it. And we've seen that over and over uh, with different projects. It's a tool, at the end of the day, it's actually a tool that contains this energy that can get released over and over by just playing the video and having people show up. That's really what it is. That is an absolutely awesome answer. Well, this sounds like an absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing project. So the big question, of course, how can people see it? How will people be able to view this film? 
Well, we are premiering at the Camden International Film Festival this September. The festival will be from September 16th to 19th in person, but it will also be virtual for 10 days. I can't remember the exact dates. And then after that, we plan to organize screenings first in Maine and who knows where else afterward. Um, I don't know what else to add to that, though. I mean, yeah, uh, our our film trailer and information on the film can be found at Le Carrefour film.com so l-e-c-a-r-r-e-f-o-u-r film.com and we'll probably be updating uh screening locations and time on there so if people want to find out where they can watch the film uh and in the future possibly we will be possibly broadcasting or uh, doing a video on demand possibly you know something like netflix or amazon those are our goals. We don't know if we'll, we'll get there, but certainly the short film will be ready by September. That sounds awesome. Now, super important question. I've been on this road a little bit, only because I've had uh, different filmmakers contact me before in the past. I know it's not free to make a film. There's a lot of resource that goes into it. If somebody wants to support this project, how can we make that happen? Once again, through our website, we have a link to our GoFundMe. So you can just go to the website, look for the donate here button or support this project. It's right on the homepage and we would truly appreciate any support from anybody interested in the project. Well, you have the, the donation from the French Canadian legacy already. And I definitely recommend others do the same. This is an amazing project. Definitely a story that needs to be told. More people need to hear about the way that this language is still being used. And I think that's very, very awesome. So again, I'd like to thank Jessamine Irwin, Daniel Quintanilla for joining the project. Joining the podcast, excuse me, their project, the Carrefour is amazing. Thank you so, so much for joining our discussion today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.